Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Assistant Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture, Elle Freak, shares her insights on the new acquisition by Rosalie Gascoigne. I'm Marnie Putney. I'm so glad to see you all here. And I would like to begin by acknowledging that we're meeting today on the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. And I pay my respects to their um, enduring relationship and ownership of the land and um, to elders past and present. So my name is Elle Freak, and I know many of you, but to those of you who haven't met, I'm the Assistant Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture here at the Art Gallery. I also want to introduce you to Karina Morgan, who is our Education Officer here and who is very talented and doing the Auslan um, interpretation today. So it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce to you um, the work of Rosalie Gascoigne, this work here titled High Country, um, which is new to our collection. It's by, as I said, Rosalie Gascoigne, who was Auckland-born, but eventually based in Canberra. It is a kind of poetic distillation of landscape, and it was created in the year that the artist died in 1999. Um, and for me, in thinking about the work, I thought, it really does offer us the opportunity to think about her important late work, but also to kind of consider the path that she took, that she walked to get to this point. So despite its, I guess, seeming simplicity in terms of materials, made of humble, found, painted, corrugated iron panels, which are of course cut and assembled on plywood, the work does convey with great clarity and power the artist's aim throughout her exhibiting life to express in sculptural form, the feelings of the Australian landscape. And I guess by this, by ideas of feelings, what we're talking about is a rather elusive, the, the elusive and lyrical sensations of, I guess, tracking through the landscape, of experiencing a kind of shift in temperature or in light, air, texture or colour. That feeling that is both personal and local, but also kind of universal when we're in nature. And the artist spoke of her approach to landscape and in, to her work um, in a kind of revealing way, I thought, when she spoke about those intangible and tangible feelings. She said, I look for the internal truths in nature, the rhythms, cycles, seasons, shapes, regeneration, restorative powers, spirit. I'm showing what I believe to be interesting and beautiful. But before I do begin to kind of, I guess, pull apart those layers within that statement, including what is interesting and what is beauty, how do we define it, I do want to step back and kind of give you some context to the positioning of this work in this display. So working on this display over a year ago now, I think, um, we were, of course, looking at Australian art post-1945. It's, it's a display titled You, Me, Them, Us. And it really has come to me to, um, I guess, look at ideas of place and belonging within the Australian um, environment. So whether we're looking at works within this display that are questioning, or, or looking at ideas rather, of sexuality, gender, or race, it's kind of located in the body, in the home, or in the landscape. Essentially, I felt at the core of all of the works was this exploration of what it means to be, of this sense of being. So the artists are coming from many different perspectives. Um, at the beginning of the space, we quite purposefully placed a group of works on paper 
um, with very urgent messages about asking people to really reconsider um, our histories. These are messages that relate to the politics at the time, and in particular to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander politics. So these include works that were created in response to the campaigns for land rights, raising awareness of Aboriginal deaths and custody, and as a way to highlight the ongoing legacies of our colonial history. But here, in this, I guess, furthest, or far, yeah, furthest point of the display, we are looking at works that I think speak a little bit more quietly, or that perhaps demand more of our time. Here are works by artists who have a reverence for elemental materials and processes, and who seem to test the physical limits of their materials as well as their bodies. Some of these artists share in a desire to distill states of nature, of simplicity, of balance, and of unity, and artists who consider their materials and their body in relationship to nature and culture. And I very much see Rosalie Gascoigne as one of those artists. So Rosalie Gascoigne very famously came to art or to the art world um, at the mature age of 57. And this was in around 1974 to 75. And often this is kind of signalled by her first exhibition at Macquarie Galleries in Canberra in 1974. But it was the year after, in 1975, when she was invited by the abstract painter Michael Taylor to exhibit in Gallery A, that she was really, um, really came to the minds of um, the Australian art scene. That particular exhibition, she received a mention in the newspaper by Daniel Thomas, for instance. A major survey of Rosalie Gascoigne's work quickly followed at the National Gallery of Victoria in 1978. So that's very, very soon after her first exhibition in 1974. And then by 1982, she became the first female artist to represent Australia at the prestigious Venice Biennale alongside Peter Booth. So although this recognition and praise seemed to come quickly for Gascoigne, the artist has admitted that her apprenticeship was 50 years long, having always held a deeply acquisitive gene and always looking closely at the world around her. Um, Deborah Clark has also offered a similar sentiment when she said that Gascoigne had been rehearsing for the art world all of her life. So Gascoigne, as I said, was born in Auckland and immigrated to Australia. She came to marry the then budding astronomer Ben Gascoigne in 1943. The artist was immediately, by all accounts, immersed in the landscape around Canberra. And there she really discovered a natural talent, a natural talent for creating assemblages of found materials. She explored the sensations and the materiality of the rural landscape um, of, known as the Monaro District, where she lived with her then young family. And when the artist speaks of this time, she speaks a lot about the differences between this landscape and the landscape of her homeland. She speaks of it being kind of rough, um, stony and a harsh environment when compared to the kind of green and the lush landscape of New Zealand. She also spoke frequently about a sense of, of isolation um, living there. And I think for the first decade or so, she lived without a car. So she, was really, she really was walking the landscape. Um, but by 1997, she referred to the area as her home when she said, my country is the eastern seaboard, Lake George and the highlands, land that is clean sourced by the sun and frost. So when thinking about this, I immediately went back to the surface of this work, looking at all of its marks and all of its scarring, um, at the result of the aging and the weathering of the landscape. 
From the very beginning of her career, of, of her, I guess, assem assemblage work, um, till the end, it was these materials that had a life, that were weathered, that brought with it different associations and a history that were to inform her work. So she used wood, iron, wire, feathers, road signs and masonite, among other materials. Initially, in, these, in the first exhibitions that I mentioned, she presented assemblage works, but they included kind of whole objects, objects like dolls or, or, or um, farm machinery. And these kind of narrative or, or more theatrical um, materials eventually gave way to a much more, um, I guess, pared back use of materials, a more abstract use of materials in her later work. A material that she would frequently return to is corrugated iron, which we can see here in high country. The material with its alternating ridges and troughs fascinated the artist. It was a material, of course, that is, was, cheap, durable, light, strong. Most importantly, it was flexible, fixable, reusable. And it sparks for me the ephemeral sensations of the natural environment. We get a sense of the kind of heat, light, air and space that once surrounded it and still does. We hear the sound of rain on a tin roof or images come to mind for me of the shearing shed, the wool shed, the outdoor dunny, the water tank of course, which is so essential to the Australian landscape and its survival. The material also brings with it darker histories such as of colonisation and invasion as of course it's essentially a product of um, industrial and imperial Britain. The artist has said of her attraction to the corrugated iron, to me it is elegant in itself, it has strength, dignity and purpose, it is ever before one's eye. I like the found colours and the sense of freedom of spirit, I see it associated with air. Pieces take their shape from the elements. I'm never tempted to manipulate it. To me, it is an absolute and better in itself than anything anyone, however skillful, can make of it. But of course, she does manipulate the material and we can see that here. Looking at this surface, which is, I would say meditative, certainly poetic, we can see the way that the iron has taken its shape, as she said, from nature. The worn and abraded material retains all of the unevenness and the variety of the patina of its previous life. There's rich variations in its palette with all of the variations of a kind of earthy, um, the earthy colours with this red, elements of green, the more untouched light silver of the iron. And of course, then there's this white paint, which no doubt was already on the material when the artist found it. And the white paint itself is ageing, it's, it's coming off the surface, it's rusting, it's yellowing. Scratches, screw holes and dents also kind of disrupt um, what would have been a very smooth surface. There is a kind of sense of rhythm to the way that the panels have been placed together. And of course she's kept a sense of kind of this linear line running across the surface. But the lines don't quite match up there's a sense that all the pieces kind of don't quite fit together. Um, if you look closely, you also see the light kind of coming through the holes, and in that we have a very bodily experience of the work. The way that we move in front of it, it changes and it shifts just like when you move through the landscape. The various browns, greys and whites within their narrow chromatic range 
to me speak eloquently about the richness and the diversity of nature, but also it's the strength, the vulnerability of nature, perhaps the fertility of nature. And in thinking about this, I realized it's really not that different to the work of Fred Williams, for instance, on the back wall, Silver and Grey, which was created in 1969. In the same way that Gascoigne has presented to us variations of the landscape, so does Fred Williams. Um, Fred also uses quite a spare, um, fluid sense of paint um, and, and a minimal color palette. But while in Fred's work, you kind of get this sense of paint moving in parallel with nature, I feel like in Gascoigne's work, there's a little bit more tension. There's a little bit more, I guess, of a complicated relationship suggested here. I also wanted to mention another work in the collection which uses corrugated iron called Swell of 1984. And I think there's a picture, sorry. It's going around, but Gloria can also pass it through. It's a work that's made of two um, pieces of corrugated iron which fit together. And they seem a little bit more pure, perhaps a little bit more untouched, a little bit more graceful, perhaps. And in this sense, they speak a little bit more directly to the iron water tanks. Invoked by the title as well, Swell, it speaks of this idea of fertility, as I mentioned, and of large expanses of water, of renewal and plentitude. Swell as a word also, of course, recalls a collection of waves moving away from a storm in the ocean. So this sense of a kind of cycle comes to mind, mm -hmm. that of life, of death, of renewal. And of course, this was all um, very much a part of Gascoigne's thought process. High country, as I said, is a little bit different from swell. The material bears more variation in texture, line, and color, and it's, of course, more fragmented in its parts. However, it continues to evoke a sense of this kind of sharp, bright light we might see in the landscape, or the air and rolling forms. Both works seem to kind of breathe the environment from which they're born from. I've mentioned a lot about Gascoigne's interest in landscape, and that is fundamentally what drives her work. Um, but so does the very process of working with her materials and in finding the materials. She, pictures of her studio shows you that she collected materials a lot. She would live with them, she would pile them up, she would wait for them to speak to her and they would eventually tell her what to, what to construct. She also, in, in the later part of her life, referenced a lot the kind of foundations in her art making back to ekabana, which is flower, a, a Japanese way of flower arrangement. So she spoke a lot about the influence of ekabana. The general principles, as I understand it, speak about a valuing of natural lines and form and a, a wish to work intuitively and to find aesthetic harmony between nature and man. Unlike kind of Western, Western floral arrangement where we, we do combine a lot of flowers, leaves, branches together, here you were to use as minimal amount um, of pieces as possible to create a sense of harmony. So there was a, a real sense of restraint in the process. And I think that all of these principles of Ekebana underpin a lot of Gascoigne's work and particularly her late work. So she was um, taught how to, I guess, do this form of floral arrangement um, from 1962 until around 1970. She was taught by the Australian master um, who, who learnt in Japan, Norman Sparnan. And he said of the practice 
that it's the creation of beauty and good design. The creative artist imposes upon nature a pattern of his, turning the page, own dimension. So although you were to follow instructions, it must also be an expression of an emotional impulse. So as I mentioned, Gascoigne certainly had this kind of emotional impulse in creating her work. One of her studio assistants had commented that her hands were always moving things around, her eyes always assessing the arrangements her hands made. She'd say her art was seeing, watching, and trying things out. Seemed to me like a process of chance, of discovery, of renewal, um, and very much underpinned by her intuitive response and judgment. But she also followed a number of um, rigid processes and principles, such as the kind of modernist approach of fragmentation, as we can see here, of reassemblage, repetition, tessellation, and compression. So these are not new ideas in art, but certainly applying them to found materials at the time was fairly new. Through this kind of high level of manipulation of her materials, materials that didn't seem to quite fit together, she often organized them in this overriding structure of the modernist grid. And of course, the modernist grid we can see here. So many people have spoken about Gascoigne's work as all kind of coming together in the end through this grid. Um, and Deborah Edwards, who did the major survey of Gascoigne's work, certainly put a lot of emphasis on the grid. And I'll read a quote from Deborah. She said, the grid as an essentially inorganic motif and one self-consciously aligned to modernism, became a crucial structuring principle for Gascoigne. Used in conjunction with manufactured materials, it further distances her work from claims to a corresponding reality, from the inference of a real order to that of the imagined. A lot of people speak about the grid as kind of turning its back on nature, but of course, Gascoigne didn't go all that way. What I find most interesting about this work is the way that the individual pieces refuse to turn their back on nature, although they are within a grid, kind of four up, four across. They don't quite fit seamlessly together. They kind of refuse to be stripped bare of their previous history or associations. We can see the iron reconstituted and rearranged in a formal grid. But the lines are wonky, they're weathered, and the textures and colors kind of interrupt any sense of regularity and precision normally associated with a grid. The fragmented surface, as I said, seem to move and, and kind of shift and seem to refuse to settle into one whole. So this grid structure, I guess what I'm saying is gives us a sense of movement. Um, and this idea of movement uh, is something really essential to Gascoigne's work. Lee Robb, our curator of, Australia, uh, of contemporary art, um, has said about this work that in a single work, she distills all of her many drives between Canberra and Sydney and her approach to the enigmatic Lake George and the shifting white sunlight glancing the surface of patches of water. So Lee's talking about movement. She's talking about shifts of landscape and it all being embedded within this work. And indeed, traveling from Canberra to Sydney, um, Gascoigne did kind of cross a, a variety of different landscapes. You travel through kind of scrubby bushland, 
through to mountainous ranges and then into an expanse of water of Lake George. And Lake George is an interesting body of water. I'm not sure if many of you are, are aware of Lake George. It's kind of fascinated people throughout time. Um, it's a body of water that seems to be there one day and then not the next. It's, there's no river that feeds into it, so consequently the water kind of comes and goes. And these comings and goings remain a, a compelling tale, I guess. When full, the lake reaches a size of about 155 square kilometres, but then when the draw to ride, uh, ride, dries up, the lake bed is almost, almost disappears entirely. This sense of mystery was something that fascinated Gascoigne, and she returned to the lake frequently um, and responded to it in her work frequently. And for me, this kind of sense of mystery of one thing being there and then it not being there, of course, tells us a lot about her use of materials and her interest in the kind of mystery of one material then being able to change and transform into something else, something becoming something else again. But of course, there was no mystery or is no mystery to the lake. And the explanation actually lies above the lake in the air um, in an ever-present wind that blows through the area. So Gascoigne once described the area as all air, all light, all space, and all understatement. So I guess before I end, I know I've been speaking a lot, um, one of the most essential things for me with this work was this idea of the landscape and in thinking about memory of landscape. Although Gascoigne is referencing Lake George and the highlands, it's also kind of about all of landscape, all of nature. Very rarely did her work respond exclusively to a particular space. It kind of conjures the sensations or the essence of being in nature. The change of seasons, the colour and the texture of the landscape as it changes and shifts. The place she knew so well and so frequently becomes for me just a starting point to a number of different associations and possibilities. Many have suggested that for Gascoigne, it was memory and imagination that really drove her work more than the environment or a sense of place. And this certainly comes through in this work. I might just leave it there. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Maria. I don't think so. And one of the yeah, reasons why I'd say that is because it has aged, um, seems to have aged over time. Also, when you look a little bit more closely to the material, even though you do get this sense of the paint kind of following through the um, composition, you can see that it's kind of, that the drip marks go at different angles. Sometimes they're going up, um, sometimes they're falling down. So to me, that's finding a material assembling it together and kind of shifting the way that it once was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, exactly. I think this, um, 
yeah, this kind of imagining of what the material once was and, and how it's come to be now is, is a part of the work. Um, and it's almost what's most interesting about Gascoigne's work is that she makes us reconceive the landscape and its material, makes us see it differently, um, makes us wonder what it was. Yeah, it, it, could, be, it could be anything. <laughs> and it could be nothing. I think that was once said about Gascoigne's work, um, that it shows you everything and it shows you nothing at the same time. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, Karina.